Hello, this is Pastor Gordon Runyon from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tucumcari, New Mexico. I'm pleased to present to you this recording of a session at our Freedom Conference 2016. Our featured speaker was Mr. Bojidar Marinov. May you be richly blessed as you listen. Amen. All right. We talked yesterday for, uh, <clears throat> and, and I want to, and I want to just uh, go over it uh, just quickly. We talked yesterday about the fact that contrary to what we have been taught uh, in the last 100 years from our pulpits, the Bible actually not only encourages rebellion against uh, an unjust government, the Bible mandates such rebellion. Now, we got to understand the difference. The Bible doesn't mandate foolish rebellion against such a government, but the difference in the Bible is not between uh, rebellion and obedience to such a government. The line is not drawn there. The Bible does not mandate and does not require and does not allow obedience to an unjust government. That would be to place yourself under the sovereignty of a foreign god, and placing yourself under the sovereignty of a foreign god would mean what? Idolatry. The Bible draws the line, the Bible assumes for granted that an unjust government does not deserve obedience, does not deserve loyalty, does not deserve respect. The line is drawn at, uh, uh, the line is drawn not between obedience and rebellion, it is drawn between wise and righteous rebellion and unwise and foolish and wicked rebellion. What Paul did in, in Romans 13, we saw that what Paul did in Romans 13 was uh, to start a revolution, to start a rebellion, but he didn't start it by calling for just replacing one unjust government with another unjust government. What would have happened if Paul started that, uh, said, let's go and you know, kill the Roman soldiers and so on? They would have created another sort of a, a, a wicked government. I mean, in Israel, think about Israel. If, if Israel rebelled against the Roman Empire, what would, they, what would have they created? A smaller version of the Roman Empire. Who would have been their leaders? The same people that delivered Jesus to death. So that would have been a foolish rebellion. And in fact, eventually Israel went into that foolish rebellion. And we know how that, that ended. In AD 70... Jerusalem was destroyed by the Roman armies. That was a rebellion that Christians were not supposed to participate in because it was a foolish rebellion. It was not the rebellion that Paul advocated, change your whole concept of government. It was a rebellion based on the same old pagan concept of government. And don't forget, these people who rebelled in AD 70 or AD 66 for four years, these were the children of the same people who cried to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. And they were delivered to their own God as a sacrifice to their own God. And there was a just recompense on the people who cry, who were idolatrous. The church had a different idea based on Paul's words of how to fight an unjust government. It took longer but it was successful. 
And it took longer by changing the hearts of the people and by changing their very idea of what civil government is supposed to be. A minister of God. A revolutionary idea, an idea unheard of before, an idea that will have taken many centuries of uh, the blood of the saints, but eventually Caesar surrendered. So what, uh, this is what we need to understand about America today. We are maybe not so far back to the Jews who had this twisted view of government, but we have degenerated from the view of our fathers and grandfathers of what the government is supposed to be. That's why we need to start understanding how the gospel applies to history and especially how the gospel applies to civil government. And we need to, we need to uh, restore our understanding of what, the, what historical conflict the gospel creates. You all understand the gospel is not just something that happens in our hearts. It is something that changes history. And if it changes history, we need to know what is it in history that is the conflict between God and Satan. Several years ago, I was actually more than several, probably it'll be 15 years ago, I was invited. I was still a young missionary who was going to different churches. And um, I was uh, uh, visiting different churches, trying to get people excited about my vision of how a mission is supposed to go. And if you, if you want to, I mean, in the question and answer session, I will explain to you what my mission, uh, what my vision for missions is. But uh, I was invited to a, uh, to a church to speak about my view of missions. It was the Southern Baptist Church, and the pastor was very friendly, and um, and he was very open. He was, uh, he, he was a, a, a former missionary himself to Africa. He had spent about 10 years in Africa. In a, I don't remember what country it was, but his wife said it was bad. And, you know, if a Presbyterian says it was bad, I know he meant there was no air conditioning. <laughs> but I know Baptists, and if a Baptist said it was bad, it was really bad. You know, and I'm not flattering here. I know I've seen both groups on the on, on the uh, on the mission field, and I've seen charismatics, and they're even less picky about. <laughs> but anyway, <clears throat> so when he uh, when when he presented me and my minister before I started talking, he took about half an hour to talk to people about Bulgaria, about communism, what it was, because it wasn't it was two, uh, the year was I think 2001. So the memory of communism was still pretty fresh. It was 15 years ago. And for younger people here, you probably don't remember those years, but um, some of us do remember those years. And uh, the memory was pretty fresh. So he was, he was telling his people about communism, what it was. And his, and his story about communism was entirely focused on the fact that communism was a system that persecuted Christians. He basically didn't mention anything else. For him, that was the evil of communism that was perse persecuted Christians. Nothing else. So, after his presentation and after my presentation, and we had a, you know, a lunch together, and I just asked him, just friendly, I said, I'm, I'm not trying to you know, uh, put you to shame one way or another, but, but I just want to ask you, if communism didn't persecute Christians, would you still be against it? 
if, if this is your only issue with communism, it persecutes Christians, would you be against it if it didn't persecute Christians? If you, if you had a communist country that had, that had all the, uh, all the uh, characteristics of communism, and, and they just decided not to send Christians to the gulags, to the concentration camps, or, or not persecute religion, not ban their meetings, and actually encourage Christians to have their meetings and so on, would you still be against it? And he, he went, well, to be honest, I actually see some value to the idea of having government laws suppressing greed. <laughs> you, know, you know your own people, you know this is a real pastor. Oh, yeah. You know, there are many like him. But he was very honest, he said, I actually like the fact that, you know, uh, greed is suppressed and, you know, the, the government intervenes so that people don't make too much money and the companies do not grow too powerful and, uh, you know, and control the market and all that stuff. I just like the idea that elected officials would control the economy and so on. So I said, so, so, so basically what you're saying is that what you're trying to do here to, to reach the hearts of the people can be done pretty easy if you just have government officials that don't reach the hearts of the people with preaching, but just write laws and force people to not be greedy. Is that what you're saying? Say, yeah, it'll be, it'll be a really good way of uh, achieving a better society. And finally, he said, in the final account, this is the salvation of people that is important, and the salvation of our souls, and anything that helps us not be, not, not commit those sins should be, should be bringing us closer to heaven, right? He was so heavenly-minded that he was no earthly good. That was a Southern Baptist. That was a Southern Baptist. What I saw with this pastor is something that I thought that American that I shouldn't be seeing in America. I, I, I could be seeing, you know, with Eastern Orthodox uh, uh, priests in Eastern Europe, but I shouldn't be seeing in America with, uh, with Protestant pastors. You know, I shouldn't be seeing in, in Western Europe with Protestant pastors. I mean, I should be seeing in Protestant pastors the understanding that there is no dividing line between gospel and history between gospel and society, that whatever you preach in the gospel should be, should also affect your culture. That if in the gospel you say that you cannot force a person to, to become a Christian, you gotta, you gotta bring the gospel to them and you gotta wait for the Holy Spirit to work in them, you gotta have the same idea about the government, about everything else. I mean, even with your kids, you cannot put a, a gun to the head of your kid and say you, you, you must be a Christian. And the same thing, you couldn't expect the government to do that. If you're preaching this thing about the church and about the individuals, how in the world did you decide that that can be done through the government? But for this pastor, this idea of separation between the gospel and real life, between the gospel and the social institutions, is a normal idea. He believes it's an idea that he actually can see in the Bible. If we believe that the gospel is this power that changes history, we should expect that history will show, will manifest the gospel in some way or another. And then whatever we believe about 
the individual soul of man, whatever rules, whatever principles we have about the individual soul of man, the same principle should apply to our church, to our businesses, and to our government. History is nothing more than the perfection of our faith. Every time you read a historian, Christian or non-Christian, and that historian is trying to interpret history on the basis of historical forces, material forces, or ideological forces, or anything else, that historian is clueless. And I'm saying this especially to young people who are going to read history books from now on, even Christian history books. If that historian, and there are not many of them out there, if that historian is not interpreting history in terms of Christian creeds and councils and confessions, mainly, that historian does not understand history, and you got to read him with discernment, or maybe even throw the book in the, in the wrong file. I always recommend a book uh, when I talk about history that I believe is the most unique book in a the more you talk with me, I mean, people who talk to me say, we're just waiting for that line. You've got to read a book. i got a book for you. Uh, and, um, and after all, this is what my mission in Bulgaria is. I'm translating books for Bulgarian Christians. And I believe that the only way to build a Christian civilization is to build that intellectual foundation for that Christian civilization. So there's a book that I believe is the most unique book ever written in history. And this is unique exactly because... It destroys that dividing line between the gospel and history. And it interprets history entirely in terms of the creeds and the councils of the church. That book is The Foundations of Social Order by R.J. Rashtuni. Coming from a communist background, I was entirely shocked when I read this book. And I keep in mind that I read 50 pages a day, every day. I mean, this is just nonfiction. And I have been doing that since I was 11. Never missed a day. Not even when I was in the hospital. You know. And this book was so shocking to me when I started reading it, when I became a Christian and I was sent that book. And, and so shocking to me that this guy actually took the councils and the creeds of the church, ignored all the babble about historical forces, about uh, nations, about civilizations, and said, this is what built the Western civilization. I was so shocked, I had to leave. I had to just leave the book for a while, because I've never heard of that before. <laughs> and I haven't done that with any other book. That book is really important for you all. If, if, if you need to understand how the Western civilization appeared, you know, you could see that in certain, I have, I have read, you know, shorter articles, uh, people correctly, uh, calling John Calvin the true father of the American Republic because that's where the ideas originated from in Geneva they did not originate in, in Philadelphia they did not originate in Boston or in Edinburgh in Scotland they originated the ideas that America was built upon and the Declaration of Independence was built upon originated in Geneva in, in Switzerland but Rushdoony went far beyond that he said no 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 the whole Western civilization that that unique civilization of history that you have today was built 
on the way early Christians understood God in Jesus Christ and the world in relation to God. That means if you want to understand the West, you cannot go to historical forces. You've got to go back to the original creeds and councils, and that's what he does in this little book. The only alternative to this is to believe, to have the belief, which is, I believe, an idolatrous belief, that in history there will be no visible difference between a Christian nation and a pagan nation. That's the only alternative. But we know that when you go into a Christian community, and if you go into a pagan community, we know that there is a difference. We know that there is a visible difference. We know that there are things like justice, that there are things like economic prosperity, there are things like insurance premiums, there are things like uh, uh, interest rates, and all this stuff is different in a Christian community than it is in a pagan community. Why? Because in a pagan community you cannot find the same justice as you find here. Anybody willing to live with the same carelessness we all live here in America, let's say in China? Or in Indonesia? Saudi Arabia? We're woefully unprepared as Americans to live in some places where there is no Christian influence. I mean, I don't even lock my car here. Try to not, not lock your car in Europe. And I'm not talking about Eastern Europe. Try to not lock your car in France. And I don't even know where the key to my house is, to be honest. What's the address? <laughs> 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 to believe that there is no visible difference between a Christian nation and a pagan nation is to believe, in fact, in the powerlessness of the gospel. <clears throat> and that is idolatry. But if, but if we do not base history entirely on the faith of the saints, if we do not inter interpret history entirely on the basis of the fact that our faith is being perfected over time, and not only our faith is being perfected, but our application of that faith is being uh, to our real life and our institutions is being perfected, then we inevitably end up believing in that idolatry, that there is no difference between a Christian nation and a pagan nation. So let's say we have solved this problem with, yeah, we do believe that history is the perfection of our faith. The question then becomes, in history, when we read history, we think about the institutions of man. whether it is educational institutions or civil government institutions or economic institutions and so on. We think about institutions of man. You open a book and you read in that book, what, what do you read about? Kings, wars, economic development, scientific, technological and educational development. You read about movements of people, migrations of people. You read about explorations and so on. You read about stuff that people do 
And this is what the, the, the object of learning in history is. We want to know what all these people did because there is something in their real actions, social and individual, that tells us something about ourselves. Right? And if we're Christians, we know also that history is a revelation of God's redemption, in a way. And history also tells us something about who? About God. So history is important to us. We read our Bibles, but we don't read our Bibles separated from the real world around us. If we read our Bibles separated from the real world around us, we would be like heretics. Yeah, the world belongs to Satan, it's just our Bibles belong to God. But we know that the world around us is also in a smaller form, in a more, in a more imperfect form, a revelation of God. God works in history. We know God through his works. That's a biblical principle. We don't know God because we met him in, in, in person. We actually cannot know really God in his person. Because he's God. But we know him through his works in history. And we know him through his also most important, unique, major work in history. That cross in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. So, in order for God to express himself in history, in order for God to manifest himself in history to us, for us to see something, to hear something, he has to speak through some institution. He has to have a representative on earth. Because Jesus is not with us, he's not present with us all the time. He said it, I will go but I will still be with you. Nobody has met him in person these days, right? Physically. I mean, I, knowing my state, I, <laughs> if I heard he is in town, I'll move to another town right away because I'm a little bit afraid of meeting him in person. <laughs> I know what he's going to tell me, okay? But nobody has met him in person today, but he has left his Holy Spirit, and his Holy Spirit speaks through an institution. That institution, through that institution, he gives his guidance. He declares his judgment through that institution. He helps his people through that institution. And he helps the pagans through that institution as well see his light. And that institution is the church. <clears throat> the church is given that monopoly of being God's prophetic voice to the nation. And when I'm saying the church, I don't mean the institutional church the way we understand it today. I mean, it could be. Part of it is God's church. But you know, there's invisible church on earth. And it's a Protestant reform principle that the church is visible and invisible. You've been in churches that are visibly a church, and something in your heart tells you, <laughs> I better go to the local bar. It's more church than this church. <clears throat> okay. And, that, and, and the church, God's church on earth, is his speaker. God works through an institution, is his speaker, is his representative. The problem with the church is, as that Baptist pastor probably knew, is that the church is not given the power to enforce God's will physically. I mean, if you have a bigger pastor who is kind of, you know, tough... Black belt, he may, he may be able to do something. 
But in God's concept, the church is not allowed to enforce it physically. And Baptists know it better than anybody else in history. Okay. Because God's representative on earth must act on the principle of ethics, not on the principle of power. God's representative on earth must act on the principle of speaking to men's hearts, not torturing their bodies. We're not forcing people through their bodies. We're trying to reach to their inner, most inner hearts and to convince them through the Holy Spirit in what is good, what is righteous. Power in God's economy must be subject to ethics. And all power must be restrained by ethical rules. And Americans should know that better than anybody else in the world. That might does not make right. Men are governed by one of the two principles, ethics or power. <clears throat> they're either governed by right or they're govern governed by might. Either might is subject to right or might makes right. When people are depraved, though, right doesn't always work. Ethics doesn't always work with depraved people. You can only have a superior ethics, a perfect law that can govern depraved, govern depraved people. Ever tried as a father to govern your children, who are, I'm sure, they're the best children in the world, like my children. Ever tried to govern them only with, um, uh, with persuasion, gentle persuasion? You reach to some point where gentle persuasion doesn't work. And something else needs to start working. Why? Because as good as you are, as a father, as good as you are as a mother, you're not perfect, and you're not giving the perfect law. There's only one person that can give the perfect law, and only one person that can afford to rule depraved people with a perfect law, and that is Jesus Christ. And that's why he's the only one who can, who can tell his people, I did not come to judge, but to serve. Now that does not exclude that at some point, he will say, there is a point where you have to use might. But that might needs to be subject to that perfect law. If it is not subject to that perfect law, it is not his might anymore. On the other hand, <clears throat> Satan has to operate through power. He's not even like you. you, have, you you're an imperfect father, but you still have some something of the perfect law of God as a Christian father. Satan has nothing whatsoever in terms of ethics. He has no way of persuading people. There is nothing in his gospel that can promise people what God can promise in his gospel. He cannot show them the difference between good and evil. In fact, he's trying to blur that difference between good and evil as much as he can. I and mean, look at our society today. If you see people trying to blur the difference between good and evil, right there is your Satan. <clears throat> he has no superior ethics. He has no superior spirit to capture man's hearts. Because he cannot reach to man's hearts the way God can reach to them. He has nothing to write on their hearts of flesh. 
For him to build his own society, Satan has to subject man to his will by raw power. For this reason, he has to have the following system of government. And if you have your Bibles, <clears throat> I want you to open to Revelation 13. And I'm going to read the whole chapter because the whole chapter is very important. And before I read that chapter, I want you to free your mind of everything you have read in eschatological books about, uh, you know, how this mutant or the two mutants there are going to appear somehow in modern days and so on. Read this only as an ideal representation of an earthly institution which has always been with us in history. <clears throat> so forget about all the books that you've read about the last days. This, folks, is not the last days. Or if it's the last days, it's covenantally. It is history in the last 2,000 years. <clears throat> and I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, <clears throat> having seven heads, and ten horns, and upon his horns ten, that's a symbol of an institution, crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was likened to a leopard, it's a beast of prey, okay? And his feet were as the uh, uh, feet of a bear, another beast of prey, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion, Another beast to pray, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. That is a key verse here. The dragon, who is that dragon? Satan. Satan, from the previous chapter. The dragon gave him his power and his seat and his great authority. We'll continue reading. Because that's an important chapter. And I saw one of his heads as it is wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wandered after the beast. <clears throat> and they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. Again, gave him power. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Support our troops. <clears throat> there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. Now ignore the, ignore the symbolic stuff about forty-two months for now, and we can talk about it some other time. I want you to look at the principles, at the institutional social principles behind it, and the spiritual principles behind it. <clears throat> And he, he opened his mouth to blaspheme against God, to blaspheme uh, his name in his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. It was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds of, and tongues and nations. Again, power was given. Look at how often the word power is related to that beast. We just talked about the two systems, either power or ethics. <clears throat> and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of the life of the Lamb, 
slain before the foundation of the world. There is a worship there, and those who worship the beast are those who are not saved. So there is a, that beast is an alternative religion, an idol to, to, to Christ. If any man have an, have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. There's an institution that is specialized in leading people into captivity. Oh, New Mexico has a lot of those places. Federal prisons, right? He that killeth with a sword must be killed with a sword. Oh, there's an institution specialized in killing with a sword. Here's the patience and the faith of the saints. And I beheld another beast coming, coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb. We got another beast here, another institution. It's not like the first beast, but it has two horns like a lamb. It looks like something that is good. It has pulpits. And he spoke as a dragon. And he exercises all the power of the first beast before him and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. We got that institution in history that helps the first beast who has the power by making everybody worship that first beast. That's happening in our world today, folks, in America today. <clears throat> and he does great wonders so that he makes fire come down from, the, from heaven on the earth in the sight of men and deceives them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which has the wound by a, which had the wound by a sword and did live. Make an image of that beast. Oh, we don't have that image here. Every single Southern Baptist church in this country has the image of that beast. But this one doesn't. What's wrong with y'all? And he has power to give life unto the image of the beast. That the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. That is one institution in the world today that has the power to kill people if they don't worship it. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, free and bond to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads and listen to this. This is the key verse that tells us what that institution is in history. And you think, if you can think of such institution today that has such regulations, that no man might buy or sell save he that has the mark, the license, the permit,
the tax identification number, social security number, the work visa, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. I'm not going to finish. But here is wisdom. You want to know the mark of a beastly society? You want to know how a beastly society looks like? This chapter tells you what a beastly society is. This chapter tells you that in a beastly society, there will be two beasts. There's going to be one beast that has all the power and another beast that speaks for it that looks like, uh, like something that has, uh, 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 that looks like a lamb. But it speaks for the first beast and both beasts conspire to not allow you to do anything whatsoever. Buy or sell or any other economic activity because every economic activity is basically buying and selling in one way or another. Unless you have the mark of that beast, which mark of the beast has been wrongly interpreted to mean some, uh, some weird mystical thing. But the mark of the beast is that image of that beast and that is the permission to be a free man. <clears throat> the dragon gave his authority to the beast. Satan, my friends, also has an institution. He also has a church that speaks in his name, and it speaks in his name through power, not through a superior law. He has to control your bodies because he cannot talk to your hearts, and the only way for him to control you and control your bodies is to have that institution that has power, and that power would not allow you to do any economic activity unless you submit to him. That power eventually results in controlling everything you do, buying and selling, without permission from the beast. You can't do anything. That institution, my friends, is the modern state. We as Christians have been idiots to believe that something can be changed through the state, through the government. We have been idiots to believe that that government that has grown on us today is the biblical idea of government expressed by Paul in Romans 13. That is not the biblical idea. Not Romans 13 describes our government today. Revelation 13 describes it. And the saints are supposed to have wisdom and do not submit to that beast. We see that conflict between God and the state developing in history in the Bible. In fact, it is so prominent in the Bible that I sometimes wonder how can we be so blind to not see it. That the historical conflict in the Bible is always God versus the state because Satan has no other institution to work through but that's the monopoly of power. He does not work through uh, uh, some obscure local cults. He does not work through the Mormons. He does not work through some uh, Krishna people or Buddhists or hippies. He works through the government. 
He works through your local government all the way to up to Washington, D.C. And there's no difference between them because they all operate on the same principle that you, a free man under God, is supposed to submit to them to every single one of their whims because that's the economy of Satan. And I don't care if those institutions are full with good Christian people. They're still operating on the same principle. We see that conflict developing in the Bible. We see Cain in Genesis 4. We all focus on, uh, most of our preachers today focus on the fact that uh, uh, Cain, after God rejected his sacrifice, Cain was jealous of his brother. And what did he do? He killed his brother. So we see the first real crime in history Besides what Adam and Eve did, he killed his brother, and then God didn't immediately kill him because there has to be an institution to meet, to meet out justice on Cain, and at the time, it was just his family. And the reason God didn't ask anybody to kill Cain is because the immediate family is not allowed to participate in the execution. Uh, God values family connections more than he values uh, the necessity of punishing a criminal. So he let Cain go. And what did that guy do, that most depraved guy in history? He could speak to God personally and yet kill his brother. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. Because at, those, at that time, they were all immediate family. Family cannot rise against family. <clears throat> and the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any, anyone finding him should kill him. And look at what this guy does immediately. And Cain knew his wife. Uh, hang on. And Cain went out. I'm sorry. Verse 16. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. And uh, dwelt in the land of Nod, which means wandering, like uh, roaming around, on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, she conceived bear Enoch, and he built a city. Now God eventually builds a city, but it's as the city of God. <clears throat> what Cain did there was build the city of man. There was no need for him to build a city, there were just... Not too many people on the planet at the time, but his first idea was to build a collective. To build a collective of people, because only in a collective of people, where there is one leader, human leader, can people effectively rebel against God. And look at this. <clears throat> and he built and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. He knew God was about to build a city. He decided to go ahead, trip God, make his own city, and call the city in the name of his son. God builds a city and calls it by the name of his son. But Cain said, no, I'm going to be God. I'm going to build my own city. It's going to be the city of man, and it's going to be a city where power 
will be the principle of government. How do I know it is the power and not ethics? Continue. And to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad beget uh, uh, Mehusel, and Mehujel, I can't see very well here, beget uh, Methusel, and then Lamech, and Lamech is our key guy here. Because when we continue, Lamech said unto his wives, he took two wives, said unto his wives, Hear my voice, your wives of Lamech, hearken unto my speech, for I have slain a man to my wounding, and a young man to my heart. That guy, immediately, the descendants of Cain, begin asserting their power over other men. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. You don't mess with that guy. He's a powerful guy. He can kick everybody else's behind. He will control everybody. It's a city for crying out loud, and it's a city of man, and a man should rule, shall rule in it, and he should rule with an iron fist. That's what man builds. Genesis 10, we see the same principle in Nimrod. Just let me find it. Verse 8, yeah. And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. All right, that continues. Now again, power is the principle. <clears throat> he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And uh, Eric and Akkad and Kalnab in the land of Shinar. The guy starts building a kingdom. Cain built a city. This guy says, no, I'll combine several cities in the kingdom. Now it gets centralized. The next chapter. <clears throat> there are some people that are roaming around and they're afraid that they're going to be scattered. Is a Christian afraid of being scattered? No, we're never scattered. Because we're always in the presence of, of the Lord. These are people who are in rebellion against God and they want to be in a, in, a, in, a, uh, in a collective because only in a collective they can assert their power. Only when they lose their identity to the collective they can assert their power. <clears throat> and they go and they stop where? In Shinar, the same land that is controlled by Nimrod. They are in his kingdom and they say that's the best place to build a tower so that everybody can see it. Everybody can bow to that tower <clears throat> because in this way we can reach up to God. We can displace him from his place. If we're together, nothing can stop us. United, we stand. So the Lord did. He scattered them. And they could not understand each other's lip anymore. So God established a principle that man should be stopped from building a world empire. 
Men continued trying to build world empires. We see that in Egypt. When Joseph went to Egypt and he saw a nation that was still, there was a little bit of liberty in that nation. Because people had their own fields, had their own cattle, had everything to their own. What Joseph did is he looked at these people and he helped Pharaoh. The question is, why did Joseph help Pharaoh? To create a totalitarian state. Because the people deserved it. And because that was God's plan for Israel to see several generations later what it is to live under a Nimrod state instead of living under a, the economy of God. <clears throat> we go to the law of God and what we see in the law of God is this. There is no centralized, <clears throat> organized state. There is no state that tells people what to do. The only principle of civil government is you are under the civil government only when you violate a law. And only when there are witnesses, individual witnesses against you, and only when that law that you have violated is against, uh, against other people. There are no laws that make you a criminal against the state. All the laws that we have there are laws that make you a criminal against other individuals. Did you know that more than half of today's court cases are actually the United States versus somebody or the state of Texas or New Mexico are actually government entities against people? Did you know that America wasn't like this in the beginning? Today, actually, you're not even a criminal anymore against other people. You're a criminal only against the government. You can commit any, any kind of crime against another person, and you can get away with it. But don't you dare deny the spoil of Nimrod. Don't you dare deny Nimrod his spoil, because he's going to come after you. And you're going to rot in jail forever. <clears throat> this is what we have today. We see the same principle in 1 Samuel 8. 1 Samuel 8, where Samuel talks to the Israelites. <clears throat> what did the Israelites want to have? They wanted to have a king, just like the nations around them. Samuel warned them, told all the words of the Lord unto the people, and asked that asked of him a king. And he said, This will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself and for his chariots. And, and, that's, and that's a pretty, that's a pre, that, that king is okay to a certain extent. Because if you don't, if you, if you have followed the news of the last week, 
our modern kings, our modern Nimrod, wants to appoint our daughters to his chariots. Not just our sons. Okay? And to be his horsemen. And some shall run before his chariots. And he will appoint him captains over thousands, captains over fifties, and will set them to uh, ear his ground, and to reap his harvest, and to make his instruments of war, and instruments of his chariot. He will take your daughters to be his confectionaries and cooks and to be bakers. Well, he's taking them today to run before the chariots. <clears throat> he will take your fields. Never happened in the United States, right? Your vineyards, your olive yards, even the best of them, and will give them to his servants. Anybody hear crony capitalism here? And he will take the tenth of your seed. Boy, I wish he took only tenth of, his, of our seed. And of your vineyards, and give it to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your manservants and your maidservants, your, your uh, uh, goodliest young men, and your, uh, your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take the, the tenth of your sheep, and you shall be his servants. And you shall cry out in that day before your king, which you shall have, cho uh, ch uh, shall have chosen you, and the Lord will not hear you on that day. And he was assuming that the Israelites are going to be much better than Americans. Because they will cry at the tenth mark. We're at the four tenths and we're not crying out yet. Our daughters at the four tenths taking much more than just a few vineyards and fields and we're not crying out yet. Nebuchadnezzar in his dream in Daniel 2. God promised in Daniel 2 a kingdom. And that kingdom was to be a very unique kingdom. In time when the world was controlled by mighty empires. We're talking about the Babylonian Empire. And they had the Assyrian Empire before that. And they, after that, they had the Persian Empire. And then they had the Greek Empire of Alexander the Great. And you, have, you had at that time in other places of the world, you had uh, the Indian Empire and the Chinese Empire and Japan and the Aztec Empire later and the empires all over the place because men, because they're pagans, were ruled by empires everywhere. In Daniel 2, we have a great promise about the new covenant that God is going to make with his people in the dream of a guy who controls millions of people with his power. And in his dream, God is giving him, ironically, this is what's going to happen to you and to people like you. And hear this. <clears throat> and in the days of these kings, that is in the fourth kingdom, of that image in Daniel 3, I'm sorry, Daniel 3, 44. He's talking about all these kingdoms, the golden kingdom, the, the kingdom of gold, the kingdom of silver, the kingdom of, of, of uh, uh, copper, and then the kingdom of iron, the Roman Empire. And in the days of these kings shall God of 
of the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break to pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. You want to know the promise of the New Testament, of the New Covenant? The institutional, political, social promise? The earthly empires are going to be broken to pieces. And in Psalm 2, God says the same thing. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers have to take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in heaven shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. And he says, I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And he continues, and he says to that king, Ask of me, I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed. Serve the Lord with fear, lest he be angry, and ye perish. The Bible speaks about this conflict, and uh, I think I've, I've gone for a little too long. But keep in mind that history after, well, the last thing actually of the Old Testament that we see, and I need to, I need to say that, is the Jews in Israel. What was their idolatry? They did not follow any foreign gods. They did not obey any foreign gods. They were actually pretty self-conscious about not setting up any image and serving any image. But in that final day, in the valley of decision, when Jesus Christ was supposed to be delivered by Pilate to, to death, he asked them, this is your king. And their answer was, we have no king but Caesar. I'm not going to continue with history. We can talk about it later. But what's important for us today as Americans and American Christians is to understand we have gotten to this place not because of Obama, but because for the last 100 years we as American Christians have declared that Caesar is our king. We have preached it. We have taught our children that. We have believed it. We have sent out missionaries to teach other people that. And now we're in the, same in the same position of feeling the wrath of our new God. And unless we change that faith back to the faith of our forefathers who rebelled against that God to serve the God of the Bible, we're not going to see liberty. Thank you all.